Go ahead, Jason. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, that we have to come before your word once again. Oh, Lord, just meditating on just entering in the presence of God and as those, those priests of the Old Testament fell on their ankle, Lord, of just the, the gravity, the reverence we, that we would, we would have, Lord, entering into your presence, Lord. I pray that this would be edifying to our souls, would be um, nourishing to our souls, Lord, and I pray that, God, we would adore you all the more, adore the gospel all the more, and Lord, the gifts and the power that the Holy Spirit supplies, that it is all of you, God, and the workings and, the, and our salvation, not only our salvation, but our good works that are produced, Lord, that we just be thankful that we be chosen vessels to be used for such a glorious task in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right, you may be seated. So, if you have your copies of the scriptures, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all. In everyone, to each given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, this passage today opens up for us and it's continuing what Anthony started last week and that is um, the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit within the church, within the New Testament church. By show of hands, how many people here have had a Pentecostal background um, at some point in your Christian walk. Okay, so several hands have went up. And that includes myself. When I first got saved, I was a Roman Catholic. I was brought up Roman Catholic. When God saved me, um, I got converted through the ministry of a Pentecostal, and I went to Pentecostal Charismatic Church, I'd say, from 1995 to 2001. So for six years, I was under um, that... Uh, brand of teaching and, and um, in my time there my experience went from extreme charis uh, uh, charismatic theology to a very reserved uh, uh, Pentecostal theology so I was kind of working my way towards being a Baptist little by little um, but I remember and I use this anecdotally in my first experience with a charismatic church I was at a Bible study one night and um, I really just wanted to hear the word, and a woman just started having an ecstatic uh, utterance. Her face turned beet red, like I mean as red as those cups we're drinking the soup out of. And she just started screaming at the top of her lungs going, ah, 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 and started running in circles in the Bible study. I was 19 years old, I just got saved, and God had delivered me from addiction and so my mind was clear. I was finally able to think rationally, normally, and I had no idea what I was seeing. 
I thought this woman was under the influence. Uh, so I got a little nervous and I nudged the girl next to me and said, what's going on? Is, is this woman okay? Oh, praise God, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was at that moment that I knew something was radically wrong with that experience. I asked, can I go to the bathroom? They said, go ahead. And I, while the episode was going on, I found my way to the bathroom and uh, excused myself out the back door and uh, never returned to that church again. <laughs> now, it may sound funny, but some of us have had some of these bizarre experiences in our Christian walk, and it's probably what led you to come to a Baptist church or to find Reformed theology. I find most people who have found their way to Reformed theology came out of Pentecostal backgrounds. They were like, wait a minute, something's just not right. This is not satisfying. The Word of God is being replaced by emotionalism. And so, you know, when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, we have to understand the proper context and framework because when we talk about things like prophecy and healing and tongues, which are the three gifts in, in this chapter that are mentioned, and, you know, we have to understand what the framework is that these gifts occurred in um, in the first century. And are these gifts descriptive of what took place at a unique time in redemption history? Or are they normative for the rest of church history? And I think that that's really the question which we need to answer. Because for the Pentecostal, for the charismatic, this is normative. This is the everyday experience of a true believer. If you're a born-again believer, then you should be filled with the Spirit, and you should be speaking in tongues, and you should be prophesying, and if you're not, then you're not filled with the Spirit. In fact, when I was in the Pentecostal church, I remember it was so simple. I wanted to evangelize. We had an evangelism committee, and my pastor said, no, you cannot do it until you're filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues. I was gobsmacked. Well, I did what any, any person would do in that case where you really want to do something. I faked it. Yes, I did. <laughs> I actually pretended to speak in tongues just so I could go evangelize. And I did that. I just went up there and did the gibberish that everyone else did just to fit in. At the time, I deceived myself into thinking that I was speaking in tongues. But as I grew and developed, I began to, I had to come to terms with myself and, and I couldn't live in this dishonesty no more. Um, and I had to come clean with myself and I had to come clean with God that this was not consistent with what scripture teaches. And that's my journey to North Shore Baptist Church. So I'm giving you kind of like the, the, the layout of my own life, but many, for many of you, this may seem very similar. So the question then is, when we look at gifts like prophecy, healing, and tongues, what do they all have in common? What, what is something they all have in common? They're miraculous. Very good. What's another word for miraculous? Supernatural. Supernatural. Okay. Anyone else? Anyone else want to take a crack at this? What is... What do they all have in common? You're right on, but... Emotionalism. Anyone else? Charismatic, yep. Yeah. Stirred up. Stirred up, okay. All right, so you're all kind of in the, in the same place, but I think, I think Brother Jason is, is really nailing it in that this is, these are miraculous gifts. Now, the word miracle, miraculous, is never used in Scripture, by the way. The word miracle is never used in scripture. It's an English word that we use to describe something supernatural. What is the word that is often used in scripture to define something that's supernatural? Signs and wonders. Thank you so much, Gautami. Very good. A sign and wonder. Particularly the word sign is used often. And so when we refer to these gifts, we refer to them as sign gifts. 
They are sign gifts because what do signs do? Do signs point to themselves? What do signs do? They point to something else. We have a sign out in the corner, right? It's a big logo, Grace and Truth Church. What does it have on it? What's, what's that big red thing at the bottom? It's an arrow. It's pointing. The church is this way. The sign has a purpose. It points you to something other than itself. And when we talk about sign gifts, sign gifts serve the very same purpose. They are pointing to something other than itself. And, I'm, and some of this is recapitulating what, what Anthony said last week, but I need to do this in order to properly explain um, the basis and the function of these specific gifts. Because in the New Testament era, we see a lot of evidences of these sign gifts. Uh, we see the evidence of prophecy. And by the way, I do not agree with Wayne Grudem. I don't think he's in error in terms of heretical, but I'm not sure I'm 100% convinced of his understanding of what the gift of prophecy is in the New Testament. Um, I, and so I'm not going to be following directly from the textbook. I definitely don't believe um, that tongues is a, is a prayer language that we use today. Um, and in terms of healings, I do believe that God still heals his people and that uh, by the wounds of Christ, uh, by, the, by, the, by his stripes, we are healed, right? By his wounds, we have received not only spiritual healing, but God does heal us of our physical infirmities through, through prayer. Uh, but none of these gifts are operating the way they did in the first century. If someone walks into this church in a wheelchair and they've been born with a congenital disease that they cannot walk, you will never see me or Paul going up to that person and say, you, throw your wheelchair up, get up and walk. You're not going to see that in any church today unless it's rigged because that simply does not happen anymore. Those miracles did happen in the ministry of Christ. They have been in the ministry of the apostles. Why? Because they were a sign. What is a sign? It points to something other than itself. Whether it was Jesus Christ or whether it was the prophets or the apostles, particularly the apostles, they are delivering a message from God that's never been heard from before, the gospel. They are declaring from God this message of, of Christ and his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. This was something completely new that hadn't been heard in Israel. And so if you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, there better be a sign that validates you are from God. When Moses was called by God at the burning bush, what did Moses say to him? He, he, he was wondering, like, all right, I'm going to go back to Israel now and tell them you sent me. What, what, what came after? He says, God, what sign should I show them that you sent me? Exodus chapter 3, right? What sign? What were the signs that God told him to, to, to show the people? Yeah, yeah. put your hand inside your cloak and it'll turn to leprosy, right? And what else? Throw down the staff and it'll turn to a serpent, right? So, so Moses goes back to Egypt. He gathers all the elders of Israel. He says, guess what? God has sent me here to deliver you. Now, if you're sitting there and you're one of the slaves in Egypt, you're looking like, okay, Moses, nice. We haven't seen you in 40 years. Last we heard of you, you were killing someone. Pharaoh's looking for you, by the way, you're a fugitive, and we're just going to follow you out of here. Why should we believe you, right? What message is this that you bring us from God? Why should we believe you? And he, he, he performs those two signs. 
And not only that, but everything that happened in Egypt from that time forward, the 10 plagues, were signs from God that he was with Moses and Aaron and that the message that they were delivering, let my people go, was not their message. It was God's message. They're what we call, and you can write this down in your notes, agents of revelation. Agents of revelation. Right? Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. says long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he's appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power God has spoken to us in diverse ways he spoke to us through the fathers he spoke to us through the prophets and in these last days, he spoke to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you want to add on to that, he spoke to us through the apostles and through the apostolic teaching in the, in the New Testament. And so, whether it was a prophet in the Old Testament who said, thus says the Lord, or it was Christ who said, verily, verily, I say unto you, or whether it was the apostles who went forth and say, this day we declare to you, there's no name under heaven which men must be saved, this is revelation. This is God revealing his will to mankind. It's, it's special revelation. It's God's word. And, and, and in order to give verify, in order to give credibility to the messenger, God equips the messenger with the ability to perform signs and wonders. So every time Jesus gives an I am statement in um, the book of John, he's performing miracles, right? So when he says, I am the bread of life, but that followed him feeding the 5,000, right? When, when, when he says, I am the way and the truth of the life, coming shortly after that is the resurrection. In other words, this is all pointing to the fact that Christ is not only claiming to be the agent of revelation for the new covenant, but the signs and the miracles and the wonders validate he is from God it's sort of like we were talking about today um, so Gabriel is questioned by Zechariah why should I believe you um, why should you believe me I stand in the presence of God I'm an angel <laughs> in other words what more do you need to believe but when God sends men among men to preach there's something we need a, a something to validate and these signs and miracles and wonders do that now, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, we saw two in incidents in history when revelation was brought about. The first uh, revelation was through Moses, through the law. And God worked miraculous signs and wonders, whether it was the ten plagues, whether it was the manna that descended upon Israel to feed them for 40 years, whether it was the, uh, um, the staff turning to a serpent, whether it was hitting the rock and the water coming out. These were all signs to show God is with Moses. Listen to him. And we have the, the book of the law. But then you get into the prophetic age. And who is the first prophet who really arrives on the scene in ancient Israel? The most well-known prophet. Samuel. Sam, Samuel. Elijah. Elijah. Elijah, right? When Christ is up on Mount Transfiguration, he's there with 
Moses and Elijah, signifying that he's with uh, both the, what, Moses who wrote the law and Elijah who, wrote, who was the father of the prophets. And so what you see here is Elijah also in his public ministry as he became uh, the progenitor of the prophetic ministry in Israel which declared God's word to his people. Uh, how did Elijah come on the scene? With signs and wonders. They were to validate his public ministry and we see throughout the prophetic age in ancient Israel oftentimes God would use signs and wonders to validate the messages of the prophets. You come to the new covenant you know, what did Jesus, you know, say to them? If I, have, if I cast out Satan, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you, Matthew 12. And then you get to the apostles, it's the same thing. Um, they're performing signs and wonders as the true sign of an apostle. Look at First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 12 for a moment. Sorry, give me one moment. Look at verse, uh, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11. I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, for in what you were less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself was not a burden to you, forgive me this wrong. He's writing to the church because he has critics in the church. They don't listen to Paul. He's, you know, whatever they were accusing him of, they were denigrating and undermining his authority as an apostle. He says, listen, I don't have to answer to these super apostles the signs of a true apostle were done among you in signs and wonders. You want to know that I'm from God? You want to know the difference between me and them? What distinguishes us? God is with me through signs and wonders and miracles. This was the evidence and the proof that the messenger, the agent of revelation, was sent from God. So this brings us to the, the topic of prophecy and what purpose it served in the New Testament church. Are there any questions up to this point? Questions or comments? Anyone? All right. So we get to these gifts, prophecy, tongues, and healings all fall under this category of sign gifts. They're miraculous. Um, prophetic utterances, and and he refers to Agabus the prophet, and he ref and we see other examples in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 14 that some have the gift of prophecy. Uh, we see this examples of speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19, 1 Corinthians 12 and, and, and 14. Um, and, and, and then you see the gifts of healings described here as well. So then the question is, what is the function that they served in the first century 
and what, if any, um, aspect of it still exists. The first thing we have to understand about the gift of prophecy is that the gift of prophecy is not so much foretelling as it is forthtelling. The gift of prophecy is not predicting the future necessarily, but it is speaking forth the word of God. For example, we go back to the Old Testament prophets. What generally was the message of the Old Testament prophet? Repent. Right? Their, their message was often a message of repentance. Now, what was what was the what we have to see is under the old covenant is that Israel the nation was in a covenant relationship with God. It was a theocracy. God gave them a law to live by, right? That law is in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It's, it's summarized in the Ten Commandments and it's elaborated through the book of Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus. And it, it basically is, is a constitution to govern the theocratic government of Israel. Just like we have the Constitution of the United States, it governs our land. The law of God was the Constitution of Israel. It was to govern not only how, how the theocracy operated, but how, how individuals ordered their lives according to God's will. So what happened over a period of time is what happened with Israel? Did they, did they keep the law of God? What did they do? They disobeyed the law. How did they disobey the law in the Old, in the old Testament? What were some of the common ways that you see Israel Intermarriage. What else? They worshipped other gods. They worshipped idols. I mean, they, the fundamental sin of Israel in the Old Testament was they were idolaters, right? The first commandment is, you shall have no other god except for me. What did they did? They worshipped every god under the sun. Go ahead, Paul. I'm just going to say that they had been under the government of Egypt for 430 years. And now God is saying, now you're going to be under my government. Correct. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we see that there was this resistance to the spirit of God, resistance to God's will. And the prophets were sent. And I like I, I don't know what theologian coined this term, but but I like it. They were God's prosecuting attorneys. God's prosecuting attorneys. Right. So so if you commit a crime and you get arrested and you go to court, who's the person who who who, who tells the the court and the jury that you're wrong the prosecuting attorney right the DA puts a prosecuting attorney to prosecute the case against you against your crime and level a judgment the difference is is that the prophets came to say listen you broke God's law you are violators you're lawbreakers you have sinned against God and the message is not so much the judgment but return repent Turn back to God. Turn back to the law. Turn back to obedience that you may find healing. This was the message of the prophets. And if you don't, know for sure that judgment will come. The prophets were also harbingers of judgment. They prophesied judgment not only for the future of Israel and Jerusalem, but for the nations. You see through the book of Isaiah in the middle chapters that uh, there's a prophecy for Babylon, a prophecy for Tyre and Sidon and all of these nations that surrounded Israel 
God had declared judgment on every one of them, the Edomites and the Ammonites. Uh, most of the prophets, in fact, are words of judgment. In prophetic nature, we call this a prophecy of woe or prophecy of weal, right? A prophecy of woe is when the prophet declares, woe is you, right? Tyre and Sidon. Woe is you, Babylon. When the prophet says woe, what does that mean? Judgment. Means, it means look out. Bad things are going to happen. God's curse and judgment is upon you. Upon the Pharisees. And, and remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he beholds the glory of God in the temple? The prophet of God who is used to declaring woe against the nations, who does he declare woe against in, in Isaiah 6? Himself. Himself. Woe is me. I've come undone. I'm undone. I've seen the, the glory of God. How shall I live? And so the prophets were prophets of woe or weal. And the weal would be the blessing. And the, 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 and the blessings that the prophets offered declared were pointing towards Christ. The prophets came for this very purpose was to speak to the future blessing of Israel. It wasn't necessarily that they were fortune tellers or future predictors, but everything they did was to point to Jesus Christ. Go ahead, brother. Why do they call it It's it's a word that in, in old English that simply means a blessing. blessing. Yeah. A curse or a blessing. And woe and weal is just it sounds nice, it's poetic. <laughs> so 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 looking at this then, the prophet is point turn me your Bibles to Second Peter chapter one. Look at verse 19. 2 Peter 1.19. And we have the prophetic word. This is speaking of the prophetic word. This is the Old Testament scripture. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. How is it confirmed? Well, Peter's writing, you know, 20, 30 years after Christ went to heaven. So it was confirmed through the public life and ministry of Jesus Christ. To which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak forth and to tell forth the coming of Christ. So when we get to the New Testament, we see the word prophecy used often. It's very interesting how prophecy is used because it is often used, especially if you get to 1 Corinthians 14, it is always used in something that's understandable that is intelligible, that is, that is uh, cognitive, that is cohesive. It's never something that is difficult or mysterious or, or futuristic, but it is always something 
that speaks forth the word of God. So look at 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love, verse 1. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially you may prophesy. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, and no one understands him, for he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church, and I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. There's two things that come out of this. One is it's the contrast between tongues and prophecy. The tongue, speaking in tongues has no purpose for the good of the church. Going back to chapter 12, God gives each person a gift individually. And notice, not everyone speaks in tongues, but some people have the gift of tongues. And the gift of tongues, like any other gift, is for the good of all. It's for the purpose of edifying the church. It seems to be that he's addressing that within the corporate gathering, people are all just incoherently and, 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 and excessively just uh, um, speaking in some gibberish and it's people walking in and they're saying, what's going on? Dude? No one could understand. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute of the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know it is played? If a bugle gives an indistinct sound, how we get ready for battle? So you with yourselves... If your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner with me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifesting manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. What builds up the church is prophecy. Now, the interesting thing is the word for prophecy in the New Testament is not connected in a way that we would think of it as a prophet in the Old Testament, but it literally means to proclaim, to herald, and is translated, remember, English and Greek, the, the translators, and I'm going to speak about this in a minute, translators have an interesting thing, because the word for Greek can be translated preach, proclaim, or prophesy. Depending on the context, your translation will dictate how you understand that. But the word for prophecy literally means to preach, to proclaim. It is to speak forth the word of God. Look at Revelation chapter 19. In the book of Revelation, we see an instance where John the Apostle it was in heaven. And just like Zechariah in our sermon today has an angelic encounter. And just like Zechariah is dumbstruck with terror. Look what it says here in chapter 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words these are true words of God. And verse 10 says, I, John, I inserted that there, fell down at his feet to worship him. He fell at the angel's feet to worship him. And the angel corrects him. He says, you must not do that. 
I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And notice this. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know what prophecy is? The testa, testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus. John was the last prophet of the New Testament. He was truly a prophet in the sense that what he received from God was written and recorded in the book of Revelation and is the last prophecy regarding what will take place throughout church history and particularly in the end times. That's it. Go ahead. Well, you said the testimony of Jesus. That's what he in John 1, 1. And, and being with the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God is right there in the beginning. That, 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 that testimony of him, who is the revelation of God, not only physically, but the uh, spiritually. And so prophecy is ultimately to point to Jesus. In the Old Testament, the prophets pointed forward to Jesus. In the New Testament, we as preachers of the word proclaim Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a minute. It's, it's actually the verse. It's the, it's the verse of our church. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Somebody read it nice and loud. Somebody, nice and loud. What does it say? 2 Corinthians 4 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. That, that's it. Amen. We proclaim Christ as Lord. You know, I know what we proclaim. We proclaim Christ as Lord. That's what we preach. That's what we prophesy. That's what we speak forth. The testimony of Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord. Christ came. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He's coming back. That's our message. The message was sealed when John, the last of the apostles, breathed his last. The last book he delivered to us was most likely his gospel. But Revelation is the final book in the New Testament that seals up prophecy and vision. Amen. What did Paul say when I came to Corinth? You know, I didn't come here to preach wisdom and I came here to preach Christ and Him crucified. It's in the foolishness of the gospel that God saves people. And so whatever we preach, whatever we exposit from the Word of God, if we're not bringing it back to Christ, then you're right, Paul. We're failing to do our job as ministers of the gospel. The prophetic ministry is found in the pulpit of the local church and when the pastors and those who are called to vocational ministry 
do not uphold their vocation and call and do like you said just kind of tell stories tell jokes yeah, yeah. or tell people how they can get there make their lives better That's or you know I want that I'll listen to Tony Robbins Tony Robbins is really good at it um, he's a he's a self-help guru I don't need to listen to I come to church to hear about Christ Praise God. That's our mission. That's what we proclaim. Now, does this not mean, and I guess going back to, um, and I talk, call this subsidiary gifts, because prophecy, vision, and revelation were sealed up once the canon of Scripture was concluded. There's no new revelation. And, and I think Grudem, as I was reading the chapter, he says that. He said, listen, the, his understanding of the gift of prophecy is this is not new revelation. And I, and I think most Pentecostal theologians would agree with that. However, you know, there's a fine line there. And I guess his view is that God could impress something upon us and that we can give a word of encouragement to somebody. But that's dangerous territory, isn't it? If, they, if they're going to preface it with, God told me to tell you. Yeah. Oh, they don't have to do that. They can tell you, I read in First Corinthians and First Philippians, or point them to the scripture. But people in their flesh, they always want to say, God told me to tell you, or I want to hear nothing from them. Or what about this? You sit with a brother or sister, and you show them where the Bible is pointing them on something that's right and wrong and for, for guidance in their life. And they say, well, God hasn't told me yet. <laughs> what are you waiting for? A voice from the sky? Go ahead, Paul. It's just, it's just a, an illustration of what you just said about something, you know, no automobile. Uh, uh, it was 1980, and I was at Sports Ahoy. Now, some of you heard this testimony yeah. before. And I was coming down from Harrisburg to Capital Pennsylvania on a Gideon assignment, and so plainly, no audible words, but this prompting. Paul, you either give up sports or you have no ministry. And by that time, all I could watch is sports. No, it was no audible word, but God was speaking to my heart in a way that I knew that I had to give it up. And, and that's a personal thing where the yeah, Holy Spirit brings conviction for sin in our lives. But, you know, there's a difference between that and going up to somebody saying, you know, the Lord spoke to me. I don't think you should take that job tomorrow when you go for that interview. That, that's dangerous stuff. And I've been in situations where people have done... When I was going to Charismatic Church, when I first got saved, I'll never forget, I was, what, 21 years old, 22, I was a young guy, and I went to Florida. Now, I, my intentions were probably mixed up. I was a young man, and I was not thinking clearly. But I'll never forget, one of the members of the church came up to me and said, the Lord put it on my heart to speak to you. I said, okay, tell me, what is it? You know, eager down, the prophecy... Do not go to Florida. If you do, you'll get eaten by a shark. Oh, wow. <laughs> I never moved to Florida. <laughs> but you see how dangerous it is? I mean, God used it in whatever way he did keep me here. I really did believe it, so. But, but, see how dangerous that is? What you're doing is you're putting yourself in the place of God. And the, the dangerous thing is here, what, what, what you think may be an impression from God 
is just you. It's your feelings, it's your thoughts, it's what you, you know, I mean, listen, it, it, when Pat Robertson, God rest his soul, I still think he was a brother, goes on TV and says, oh, if someone in the audience, if you have knee pain, well, you've got an audience of like three million people, guaranteed someone's got knee pain today. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to see through a lot of this and understand that, that this is not the way God operates. Now we have false prophets as well. We have people that have made many false prophecies. Um, Oral Roberts was a false prophet. Um, Benny Hinn is a false prophet. And when I say false prophet, these are people who, who predicted that Jesus was coming back, and he didn't. Harold Camping is a false prophet for that. I know dear sister Marvel loves Harold Camping, but he's a false prophet. He made a false prophecy. He said Jesus is coming back and people sold their property, they quit their jobs, and and he was dead in the water wrong. I blame the people rather than you. Oh, I'm sure on judgment day God's gonna hold him accountable, Marva. We have to be very careful when we say, Thus says the Lord. We have to be very careful when we modify it and say, God spoke to me. Now someone come up to me. It says, Bob, God spoke to me. We should not sing modern songs. We should only sing hymns. Now think of the gravity of that. And no one has done that, but just think of that for a moment. If it is true that God spoke to you on that, and I don't do what you say, then I am bound in violation of God's word. Pastor. Yes. Is as you like you said, I, I came up the same way, Catholic Pentecostal, and now I'm here. Yeah. And and what they used to do in the Pentecostal movement is that they would say, I had a dream. And through my dream, I saw this, brother. So, and there was, come up with things that, yeah. that almost sounded like you can trust. Yeah. But then, then I, I would always go back to the words of Christ on the cross. Everything is finished. You know, I, in other words, I did everything. I'm the one that's fulfill the word, I fulfill everything. And once he said that, he completed, he doesn't need help, is what I'm trying to get at. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot, a lot of people are thinking that they gotta help the Bible. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to. The Bible defends itself, protects itself, and teaches us all how to trust. So, when, when individuals come up to you with that, oh, I had a dream that, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, he had a good dream. You know, <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right, brother. And so, you know, with this sense, um, I want to, to say that when we look at the gift of prophecy, I believe that for the most part it came to a conclusion um, at the, the close of the first century and that what we see here is that the, the expression of the gift of prophecy is primarily in the gift of preaching and teaching where we proclaim Christ we proclaim the gospel. Um, all right, moving on to that, I have a little bit of time. I won't be able. I'm, I'll cover tongues next week. That's another topic. But what I do want to do, yeah, time is almost up. In the remaining minutes, I do want to cover the topic of healings. Um, because when we talk about healings, this is another 
uh, topic. And just so you understand, right? Historically speaking, when we look at church history, after the first century, well, even towards the middle to the end of the first century, the, the sign gifts are waning, right? Paul is sick in his old age. He's writing in 2 Timothy. Uh, um, a de- not Demas. Um, who was it that was sick and he couldn't heal it in Philippians? Was it Titus or, or was it... Um, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was sick and he's, and, he's, and he's praying for him. He said, I wanted to be there for him. He couldn't heal him. Now remember, this is Paul who in the book of Acts, they just touched a handkerchief that he owned yeah. and they would be healed. And now he has people in his entourage who are sick and he can't heal them. Why? Because the message has been established. The kingdom is going forth. Churches being built. There's no need for the continuation of these sign gifts. You go through church history, you don't see this really at all present for 2,000 years. It's not until the early 20th century that we begin to see the rise of the Pentecostal movement. The Pentecostal, and the Pentecostals will claim, and this is, and it all developed out of the, um, a lot of the revivalist movements of the 19th century, was that it's the latter rain movement. I, was, I, I studied Pentecostal theology when I was Pentecostal. The latter rain movement means that, you know, if you, if you understand the Bible, it's the early rains that come, and then there's the latter rains of the harvest. And so the latter rain movement, you look at James, talks about the latter rains, is that in the end times, uh, there'll be another outpouring of the Holy Spirit like Pentecost, and it's going to be symbolic that we're at the end of the age. And so therefore, that's the explanation why in the last hundred years, this has become the normal experience of believers if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and not for 2,000 years. I'm not buying into that. I think it's bad exegesis and bad theology. Um, but wh- when we go back to it, when we're looking at particular instances of healing, um, we have to be careful again here of what we're talking about, distinguishing the kind of healings that took place in the first century, whether it was raising people from the dead whether it was healing people with congenital blindness, whether it's casting out of demons. Um, these were things that took place. They were unusual at a time in, in, in history to validate the message of the gospel. But now when we see healings, we have to be very careful. Um, several years ago, and Claudia will, will tell you the story if she's here. She's still here or no? Just left. But years ago, her aunt was dying of cancer. Her aunt, uh, uh, Ada, she had breast cancer for 18 years and they were desperate for a miracle and um, this was in Florida Benny Hinn came to town and had a big revival and I, I was warning the family don't go don't go don't go but you know when you're desperate you will go wherever you can to find that miracle and um, my mother-in-law had a terrible experience and she shared with us she said, the minute they walked in the door it was money to get in the door it was money for every little thing. It was trumped up charges for the books. The buckets were going around, filled, overflowing with cash. She said, everywhere you look, money, 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 money. She said, not even halfway through the search, she realized it was all rigged. There were no healings. There were no miracles. And Benny Hinn today, for the most part, everyone knows he's a fraud. His own nephew came out and testified again, Costi Hinn. You never heard. Look up the, t- the word, the name Kasi Hin. He's the nephew of Benny Hin. He's done a tremendous expose. 
he has a lot of videos on YouTube. Yeah. And um, Justin Peters has interviewed him. Justin Peters. <coughs> now, here's the interesting thing about Benny. And, and when I first got saved in the early late 90s, early mid to late 90s, you know, this was all the rave, Benny Hinn. He was big at that time. And I remember we used to watch him on TV, get his jacket, knock down 20, 30 people all at once. Wow. You know? Um, you would think this is big, you know, this, this, this guy was filled with the power of God, like a prophet had arisen, made several prophecies that never came true. But the linchpin for me with Benny Hinn, and I'm using him as an example, I, I think it was around 2001, I watched, it was a special on ABC, and it was a story, an expose on Benny Hinn, and they gave a, a, a they showed a family from Florida, they were an Indian American family, they didn't have a lot of money. Now they had a, 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 a son who was born with some uh, birth defect and disease where he wouldn't live past three years old. Like he, he was in a wheelchair, he couldn't move, he couldn't eat, he was, uh, he was really in terrible condition. And so desperate, they went to Benny Hinn for healing. And what did Benny Hinn tell them? They said, give me your life savings. I think, it, you know, these were poor people. Um, and they, they said, $30,000, that's all we have in the bank. He says, give it all to me in faith, and I'll heal your son. So they cut him a check for $30,000, everything they had, trusting and hoping for a miracle for their son. Well, he died a week later. I'll never forget, I think it was Diane Sawyer or Barbara Walters interviewing Benny Hinn. I can't remember the, who it was. And they, 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 you know, they showed the parents, they were weeping, they were in tears, they were devastated. They lost their son, they lost their life savings. And they, they said, don't you feel bad that you took these people's life savings and, 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 and their son is not healed? Like, what's your explanation for that? And with the most cold, calculated, like, hardened heart state, he says, they didn't have enough faith. Oh. This is awful bad too. Yeah. Who uh, uh, died in A lot of guys draw big Creflo, <laughs> Creflo, Joel Osteen. Yeah. He was interviewed by Larry uh, King live, and uh, Larry King said, "What is it about you that you can draw such a big crowd to Yankee Stadium?" He said, "I don't preach about sin, hell, and damnation. I." to make him feel good. Yeah. That's just as bad. That's worse because you're dealing with the, the eternal soul. Yeah, he's the he's the the, the inspirational, positive, uh, you know, Dale Carnegie preacher. But Hin is the is the typical false healer. Um, the guys who sell oil on TV at night so you can be healed. It's a lie. It's all lies. And what they do is they exploit like that young Indian family people who are desperate. People who are weak, people who are dealing with situation in their life, and they're desperate for a miracle, and so they look to these people, and maybe God will heal me. They're hucksters. God doesn't use specific people to heal, but what He does do is He answers prayer. God is our healer. And I can tell you this, and this is where we understand that the the miracles that we saw in the first century that doesn't exist no more. But what does exist. God still can miraculous heal people. I think it was Peter Nakocha, or Pastor Peter down in Grace Baptist Church. Um, several years ago, he, he was diagnosed with cancer. 
and he was going for surgery. We were praying for him. 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 He was living on shore. Lord, have mercy on Pastor Peter. And, and would you believe that when he went for surgery, they opened him up, they said, there's no cancer there. It's all gone. Richard Joyce's mother, she passed from cancer recently, but many years ago, like in the early 2000s, they found a spot on her lung that they were 100% positive was cancer. They were going to operate. We prayed, we prayed, God have mercy. And, and they went in, and guess what? There's nothing there. X-rays were clear. So, so what I'm trying to say is that we can't limit the hand of God. God in his grace at times heals us. He doesn't heal all of us, right? Some of us, it, it pleases him for us to suffer that we may glorify him in our suffering. But at times God does heal and at times God will intervene. I mean, when the Lord in John 5 went to the, the pool of Siloam, there were many cripples there. There were many people who were, had disease. But what did he do? He selected one man and he healed them. Could Jesus have healed everyone there? Absolutely. But it wasn't his will. It reminds me of the woman with the issue of blood. She touched the hem of his garment and he felt the power go out from him. And, and she said, Lord, if thou art willing, will you heal me? Art thou willing? And that's the key. When we are sick, when we have disease, you know, Jonathan Edwards was the greatest revivalist preacher of the 18th century. It pleased the Lord to take him at 50 years old from strep throat of all things. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, who was probably one of the greatest Reformed preachers of the 20th century, the Lord took him home. Could I say a word about Montgomery Boyce? Yeah. He was asked, he said, or he was asked that if the Lord would have allow you to do your will, would you do it regarding his cancer? He said, no. He said, God's will is better. <laughs> but I'd like to say this yeah. about healing. Go ahead. Uh, what's happening, in, uh, and I got a lot of literature about this. In the, in the third world, so to speak, they've never heard the gospel before. God is doing some healing and bringing people to himself through a healing in, in possible situations. He's, he's doing healing today to bring people to himself in these uh, different countries. And I would concur with that in this sense. is This is the gospel message going to territories where people never heard of Christ. Yeah. They've never heard of the God of the Bible. Yeah. They're, they're worshiping like animistic religions. Yeah. I could see that. Exactly. One of the number way Muslims are coming to Christ in the Middle East yes. is through dreams and visions. Exactly. That's so, what I to get so, so I'm not saying that this is, and that, be careful, you know, don't misunderstand me what I'm saying. I'm not saying that these things don't happen. What I'm saying is not the normal experience of everyday Christianity. Right, right. But, in times like this where God is opening up doors in areas where people never heard the gospel. That's it, right. The, Lord, the Lord's hand is not too short. Nothing is impossible with him. All right. Uh, any other questions or concerns before we close? No, like you said, like um, Edwards and David Brainerd. Yeah, 19. He was young, died of tuberculosis. Could God have healed him? I think uh, even um, Calvin, I think he had bad anxiety. Yeah, Calvin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. with the gout. Oh, yeah, yeah, tuberculosis, Calvin. He would oh. he would walk into the pulpit <laughs> spitting the blood and he had a spittoon and he spit blood while he was preaching. I went to Calvin's church in Switzerland and I seen the spittoon where he would spit his blood when he was preaching. Wow. 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 Wow.
it, it's and I tell you, it's funny because um, we, I tell you, we catch a cold and we're like, oh, I can't go to church today, and 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 you see these men of God, and and you see the the sickness, like you know Calvin or or the Spurgeon with the gout limping in the pulpit preaching, and you see that these were men who just were so captured and captivated by the grace of God, nothing to help them back. George Whitfield. George Whitfield, yeah. All right, any other closing comments or questions? I think we used our time up, but it was next week we'll focus more on the gift of tongues. That's in, I'm sure you guys want to be there for that one, right? I'll speak it in a foreign language so someone has to interpret it. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Um, Brother Joe, can you can you close us in prayer? Father God, we thank you for our time today as we came together. And, uh, thank you for Pastor Bob and giving us a, a word on the gifts, spiritual gifts. Lord, I pray that we continue to look into your word and, and we continue to just follow you and keep our eyes on you and give us uh, safe um, travels and mercies as we go and enjoy our week. May God be with us. Praise the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Go in peace.